Okay, everyone, my uh, cell phone clock just hit 6.45. That's what I'm going by. I think that one's a little fast, but 6.45 here. So we're trying a new Wednesday night format, which is to be uh, us starting our teaching time at, hopefully, 6.45, more or less sharp. And so let's, let's give it a go. So we're going to jump right into our lesson for tonight. We had a little bit of fellowship as you got here. We'll do our lesson and have a, our dessert fellowship afterward. But join me in a word of prayer. I think most everyone has a handout by now, and we're going to... Just get started. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Glory be to your name, Lord. Praise be to your name for being our good and gracious heavenly Father. Thank you for the gift of of life, life in Christ, new life in Christ, life eternal. Thank you for the gift of of life itself through through birth, just the the gift of of children to us. We're going to say tonight about children, about infant salvation. Uh, a big topic. I pray you, you keep us close to scriptures. May we be guarded and guided by scripture, and yet find out what your word says about this important topic. Give us wisdom and light through your word uh, to, to cut it straight. We pray you just bless our time together tonight in your word, and we have an edifying time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, well, I trust most of you know in the past weeks and months, we've been studying the very important topics of predestination and election in scripture. As part of this larger Doctrines of Grace Bible study. And we finished that part now, the, the, the concept and the doctrine of election. We've really gone through all that territory. We're about to move on. But before we move on to the next subject, which is the atonement and issues around the atonement, there are a, a few corollary issues have popped up that I felt are worth addressing. And this would be the perfect place in this study to address them. And they just fit and intersect with the doctrine of election one way or another. The first issue was heathen salvation. And by that we just mean, what about all those people around the world, and even throughout history, who never even heard about Jesus or about the gospel? They never even had a chance to believe in Jesus because they never heard of him. They, they came and went. Can those people be saved or not? Well, we covered that last week. That was the first kind of corollary issue. And we're really not going to readdress any part of that now. You can... Get that lesson from last week if you weren't here. The second issue related to election that we want to cover today is something we hinted at last week, namely infant salvation. With the concept of what's, what's called in the world of theology, heathen salvation, really we're asking the question, what about people who never heard the gospel? Can they be saved? What about people who never heard the gospel? With infant salvation, we're asking the question, what about people who can't? hear the gospel. In essence, infants, small children, we include the mentally handicapped here. People who are just mentally incapable of hearing, understanding, perceiving the message of salvation. That's the question we're asking here, and and similarly, can they be saved? The question of infant salvation has been posed all throughout church history. At the same time, infant salvation, it's the common title. It may not be the best title because, like I said, we're not just referring to infants, but also young children and those who are mentally handicapped. But in general, infant salvation conveys the basic question being asked. Can people who do not have the ability to believe in Jesus, can they still be saved? Is it possible for infants to be saved or not? Can they be among the elect? Are they among the elect? What does the Bible say about this? If they can be saved, how? And if not, why not? This is what we're going to try and study today. Now, you might be surprised to learn that the majority of Calvinists believe in infant salvation. 
The majority of Calvinists believe in infant salvation. Some would say only hyper-Calvinists reject the notion of infant salvation. Infant salvation is not a tenet of Calvinism. It's not like one of the five points, but it is widely held among Calvinists. It shows up in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Chapter 10, Article 3 says this, Elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Holy Spirit, who works when and where and how he pleases, end quote. Mentions elect infants dying in infancy. Some have taken that phrase to mean the confession writers believe there were unelect infants, but many today argue that the confession writers were simply referring to elect infants dying in infancy as opposed to elect infants who grew up. Remember, election has nothing to do with a person's age. In reality, it doesn't actually make sense to speak of an elect infant or an elect adult. There's only elect people. It doesn't Their age is irrespective. God makes the decision of election before time. So when a person died in infancy, many would argue that the Westminster divines, you know, the people who wrote that old classic confession of faith, believe that infants were among the elect. You may have heard of uh, Spurgeon, famous preacher in the 1800s. He's a very notable Calvinist, and in his day, early on, he was attacked by many of his opponents in the sense that they assumed that, because he was a Calvinist and he believed in this unconditional election nonsense, that he must believe that God sends babies to hell. And Spurgeon himself, though, vehemently denied such claims. He's one of the strongest defenders of infant salvation among a very third-through Calvinist. Spurgeon even said, that in his day he knew of no Calvinists who believe that dying infants are lost. And I can say the same pretty much for myself today, at least to my limited knowledge. I don't know of any significant pastoral or theological mainliner, main figure who believes that infants are lost within Calvinism. At the very least, there's nothing in Calvinism that prevents us from holding to a notion of infant salvation. That being said, why do we believe this then? And uh, I do believe in infant salvation. We're going to explain this, obviously, throughout. But why? Why do we believe in infant salvation and the salvation of those without mental capacity? On what basis can we say that they're among the elect? Now, I've encountered a lot of well-meaning Calvinists who they take seriously unconditional election, and they have this kind of thought process where they reason in their minds, okay, if, if God, before time, he elects people unconditionally, that means his choice of election is not tied to any condition. Doesn't that seem to govern the, the condition of, of dying in infancy, right? So that means his election can't be tied to the condition of dying in infancy. And so they reason like, well, uh, infants, they might be elect or they might not. I mean, who, who's to say that God has to elect them or that he has elected them all? It's just up to him and who's to say that he has. And I get this logic. I understand this logic. And, and to this, we do affirm that God's choice of sinners for salvation is indeed unconditional, meaning his choice is not based on any met condition in a person. We spent over a month studying that point where Arminians believe in conditional election, Calvinists believe in unconditional election, and that's where we found the scripture to, to be crystal clear in. But at the same time, we would also point out there's nothing stopping God from, of his own free will, choosing simply to elect all whom he knew would die in infancy, rather all whom by his ordained plan of all things ordained would die in infancy. 
Calvinism is certainly open to the possibility of infant salvation. At the end of the day, though, we always come back to what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? Does the Bible say anything about this? Does it weigh in on this one way or another? That's what we want to try and figure out. It is my position that all who die in infancy or early childhood, as well as those with mental handicaps who do not have understanding, that they are among the elect, and therefore they go to heaven when they die. To be clear, to be fair, there is no single verse in the Bible that directly teaches this. There's also no single verse that directly does not teach this, or rather that contradicts this. We're going to find the Bible does not directly address this issue one way or another. That doesn't mean it doesn't say something. I do believe there is enough scripture to support this position, to take us in that direction, to leave us comfortably in that position. And so in the rest of this lesson, I'm going to lay before you the the case for infant salvation. And again, we're using that as a general title. I include young children and uh, those with mental handicaps. We'll talk about those distinctions later. But hopefully this will help you at least start to think through this actually rather large issue biblically. And so like we did last week with this issue of heathen salvation, we're going to frame this discussion with a bunch of questions, a series of questions that we're going to question and then answer, work through. So starting off, and you have these in your notes just if you care to follow along. Are infants truly persons? This should be obvious. I hope to you, yes, they are. And at least for now, our wicked society still understands and believes that infants and children are real persons. And so if, if there's an infant in the car and the infant dies, it's manslaughter, it's, it's a life was taken. But of course, here we want to go a step further, although we wish we didn't have to. We wish this was obvious. But we feel compelled to add that even infants in the womb are real persons. This is a baseline fact that must be stated. Every life conceived is a person with a soul. Life begins at conception. And therefore, death at any point after conception is the death of a real person, a human being with an eternal soul. Psalm 139 verse 16, for example, says, Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were written all the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. We're not going to go further to build that case right now. I trust for you, it's a no-brainer. But I just want to point out this entire discussion applies to infants and even those who died in the womb and all those who were aborted as well. This whole discussion applies to that category of of people. And as a quick side note, just, I guess you call it coincidence, but just today, if you haven't heard, my wife Angel's pregnant. We had an ultrasound, 10 weeks, four days along. We got some video if you want to see it later. Baby's moving, kicking, two hands, two feet, head, second thumb, really moving a lot, doing a little dance in there. Got some fun video of that. It's amazing how just at 10 weeks, how incredibly developed they are. You could clearly see hands and feet, even before heart re- heartbeat starting so early. It's profound, the stamp of God's power and in, in life and creation. But anyway, I trust I don't have to convince you of that. So that's our first question, though. Secondly, a, a more, I guess we'd say for this discussion, a relevant question. Are infants truly lost? Are infants truly lost? Meaning, do they even need salvation? Is this, do we even need to talk about this? Do they need salvation? Well, let's talk about a few things. First, we need to reaffirm here what we've previously learned in this study. We spent weeks on this as well. Namely that, well, all people are sinners. All people are born sinners. 
just a handful of verses. We looked at a lot of verses on this topic, but Genesis 8, 21, the Lord said, the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth after the flood. Psalm 51, verse 5, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. He understands that he was born a a sinner in the womb. He came into existence already as a sinner. Psalm 58.3 says, The wicked are estranged from the womb, cut off from the womb. And Ephesians 2.3 says, We were by nature children of wrath. And even in Ephesians 2.1, Dead in our trespasses and sins. Spiritually, we're all born dead. Spiritually, we're conceived and we're dead. Right away, spiritually speaking. And so understand people sin because they're sinners. They're born with a fallen nature, already in rebellion against God. And that sin will be expressed as soon as it can. The sin nature is a congenital problem. We're simply born with a fallen sin nature, a nature already inclined to sin and to rebellion against God's ways. Think of a baby giraffe. Right after being born, just minutes, it will start to walk. Just minutes, it'll start to walk with sound feet. For us, it takes a year. What's the difference? It's just, it's in their nature. It's just simply part of their created nature to walk immediately after birth. For us, it's not. Likewise, for humans, to sin, it's in our nature. We are just going to sin against God's ways and God's word, God's will, God's law. It's part of our fallen nature. This fallen nature goes back to the fall. We inherit from Adam a fallen nature, a nature bent toward evil. We also inherit from Adam guilt. The whole race fell and died in Adam. Though we're not judged for Adam's specific sin, the condemnation of his act infected all humanity, such that all his descendants are born unclean, defiled, and at enmity with God. Being our head, we share in Adam's guilt, and so we're born already separated from God in solidarity with Adam. So just imagine if, if our president, who is the head of our country, the head of our, us as citizens, if he decided to unilaterally nuke Russia, well, Russia would declare war. We would be at war with Russia. At that point, every single one of you, every single U.S. citizen would exist in a state of war with Russia. Whether you like it or not, whether you had anything to do with the decision to declare war, doesn't matter. You're now at war with Russia. Such is the nature of representative headship. And understand that Adam, he declared war, essentially, against God through his rebellion in the garden. And now all who are born of him, they're born in a state of warfare, spiritual hostility with God. We're born, scripture says, at enmity with God. I'm really just recapping our study back on original sin from lesson number three in this study. And so therefore, because of original sin and its effects, infants are in need of salvation. They are in need of salvation. True, those in the womb, young infants, they have not committed any deeds of sin. That goes without saying. But they're still at enmity with God because of their sin nature. In a strict sense of the word, therefore, infants are not truly innocent before God. They are guilty because of Adam's guilt per original sin. So to be clear, even though infants and unborn children have not committed any deeds of sin up to a certain age, all people from conception are born lost. The whole race fell in Adam, such as the state of fallen mankind. And so therefore it must be said that all people ever conceived are in need of salvation. 
All people ever conceived are in need of salvation. And we can also say all people ever conceived, their only hope is Christ. The only hope any person ever has is Christ. All people must enter the kingdom the same way, and that is through the door of Christ. There's no exceptions, including infants, including the unborn. We'll talk more about that later. As a quick side note, now some Arminians and semi-Pelagians, if those words don't ring a bell to you, go back to our early studies and freshen up, but they deny original sin. They deny original sin. Some would say, well, we inherit from Adam a sin nature, but not any guilt. There's no inheritance of guilt, contrary to Romans 5. Romans 5 teaches that, as we learned. And Pelagius himself, going back even further, he contended that from Adam we inherit neither a sin nature nor guilt. We're born good. We are not born astray. We are born good. And the church condemned that. But nonetheless, some Arminians would contend that infants and the unborn, they're born without sin. They're obviously not sinners by deed, and they have no inherited guilt. Therefore, they're not lost. They don't need to be saved. They're not really lost. They have, they have no merit, merited guilt before God or inherited guilt. Not every Arminian believes this. There's a spectrum of belief, as with all systems. But some believe that God saves infants because he has no reason to condemn them. They're just they're, They die in, in infancy or, or childbirth or before, and they just are ushered into heaven. There's no reason for God to condemn them. That's so that just letting you aware that that's a position for someone who deny original sin that they hold. It does still make you wonder, though, why the infant would die if they have no sin. At least we believe the wages of sin is death. And if there's no sin, there's no guilt, they shouldn't die. Like Adam and Eve before the fall, if they have no guilt, they, they shouldn't be dying at all, physically or spiritually. Anyway, if you want to learn more about original sin and its effects, we're going to leave that here. Go back, download Lesson 3. Uh, on our website from the study, you'll get the whole long version of all that stuff. But in short, we're going to say this. Yes, infants are truly lost and in need of salvation. And, and by infants, in the whole category, any person ever conceived. Next question, is infant salvation affirmed or denied in Scripture? And the answer here is just there's just no verse that teaches all infants are saved. There's also no verse that teaches infants are condemned, that all or any infants are condemned. There's just no verses that directly say all infants are saved. There's no verse that says all infants are condemned or that any infant is condemned. Joe? Uh, I went by uh, a book by uh, John MacArthur, and there was a passage that said that all infants Are you cheating, Joe? Are you looking at the notes? Are you looking at the notes, Joe? Well, that's a good verse. That's actually the verse we're going to turn to right now. You have your notes, 2 Samuel 12. So if you grab a Bible, you can turn there. But good thinking. You think, great minds thinking like Joe. Good job. So we are going to look at this, this first reference. But at the same time, we're going to see it's not a silver bullet verse. Where we're going to talk about it. There is no silver bullet verse teaching all infants are saved. There's also no verse teaching all infants are lost, or really that any infant is lost. There's just no example of that, of infant condemnation. So to be fair, to be honest with this issue, the Bible does not directly address this issue one way or another. When it comes to universal infant salvation or universal infant condemnation, you're not going to find verses on that. 
But that, that, that's not to say scripture doesn't speak to the issue. It does. That's why we're doing this. We do think there's, scripture has a, enough to say on it. But we're just being honest. We're left to piece together some indirect and secondary references. I still believe there's enough. That's why you're here. You're going to stick with me on this. But we're going to do that throughout the study. First, though, I do want to point out, like Joe mentioned, this is the verse that comes to everyone's mind. It's the most famous verse that people use as an example of infant salvation. I do believe this is an example of infant salvation. It doesn't teach necessarily universal infant salvation. It's just a case study. But, of course, it's worth pointing out. So let's do that. 2 Samuel 12 is the passage. Like Joe had mentioned, it's after the, the Bathsheba incident. David commits adultery with Bathsheba. She gets pregnant. He covers it up by having her husband killed, takes her, marries her as if to, to, to give the appearance that it's a legitimate pregnancy, not out of wedlock, but the Lord knows anyway. David is rebuked by Nathan the prophet, at which point he does finally repent, and he's forgiven of his sin. As he repents, the Lord says, your sin is taken away. Praise God for that. But there's still consequences to his sin, as there often are. Even for believers, there's still consequences. And one of the consequences that God himself said, because you've done this, the child shall die. So the child dies as a consequence of David's sin. That's another issue right there. We're gonna get, not going to get into, but nonetheless. So the child is born from Bathsheba and, and David. And after the child is born, he doesn't immediately die. And as a child, though, is, is clearly sick. Something is going on with him. So what does David do? He fasts and he weeps. He, he intercedes. He's praying fervently before the Lord. But, but then the child does end up dying. And so look at verse 19. It says, When David saw that his servants were whispering together, David perceived that the child was dead. So David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, and changed his clothes. And he came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. It's kind of strange, like, okay, when the child was alive, he's weeping and fasting and praying. And then the child dies, he's, he, he breaks his fast, he has a meal, he worships. I don't want to say go back to normal, but he's, got, he's, he's no longer in this intense grief. Kind of, we would expect the opposite, actually. And his, his servants recognize that, and they ask him, like, what's up with that? So verse 21, Then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But when the child died, you rose and ate food. And he said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me, that the child may live. Verse 23, but now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. And so there, of course, in verse 23, the phrase where David understands and believes he will go to his son, even though his son will obviously not return to the land of, of the living on this earth. And we know that David expected to go where when he died? To heaven, absent from the body, present with the Lord. That was his clear expectation to, to be in God's presence upon death. And so this verse, therefore, suggests that David expected that he would see that deceased son again in heaven. Now, I understand this is narrative. This is descriptive, not prescriptive. It's merely telling us what David believed. I get that. But at the same time, 
David is quite a significant figure in the Bible. He's often given as a paragon of truth. He reflects biblical truth. There's something to be said here. I think this is significant. Some would say that David, he's merely expressing the fact here that, look, everybody dies and eventually he'll die and, you know, we all go to the grave. That's just all he's saying. But at the same time, what's interesting is David does not respond like this when his adult son, Absalom, dies in rebellion. He doesn't respond like this. Remember Absalom's rebellion, his adult son, clearly a rebel. He was lost. And David has a much different response when Absalom dies. There was no hope. There was no expression that he would see him again. No hope that he's going to see Absalom again. That's why David grieved so heavily after Absalom died, because implicitly he believed he's not going to see him again. So, again, to be fair, this is narrative. It's not a silver bullet verse teaching all infants are saved, but I do believe it's at least a significant example of a huge figure in Scripture. I mean, the precursor to Christ, the messianic type, David, at least himself, believing in infant salvation. It's enough to lead us in a direction. And there's going to be many other verses we see that will continue to take us in that direction. We're going to get to a lot of those verses as we move on. But first, I want to ask this next question as we carry on. A next question here. How would an infant be saved? How would an infant be saved? Let's just presume they can be saved. They are saved. Okay, if, that, if that's going to happen, how would it happen? few options here by baptism is are they infant salvation by baptism no i trust you get that's a a no-brainer for us it's no we reject baptismal regeneration which is the view of the roman catholic church but no we rightly reject that no need to get into that right now simply to state baptism does not contribute to salvation in any way for either an infant or an adult it's a response to faith it doesn't produce or procure faith And even for Catholics, this still would mean that the vast majority of infants who've died would be lost. They were never baptized. And all those aborted would be lost. They were clearly never baptized as well. But suffice it to say, this is an easy one for us to rule out. Not salvation by baptism. What about salvation by the faith of their parents? Are infants saved maybe because the faith of their parents? Well, here again, we would clearly say no. The faith of parents cannot save their children. I just bring this up because some Presbyterians and Covenantalists, they're big on God showing favor on the children of believing parents. But we would say the faith of parents is still not sufficient to save their children. Some Presbyterians who are typically Calvinists, they do believe, for example, that, well, God saves the children of believers, Believe, you know, an infant, a believing parents, they would be saved. Part of God's covenantal blessing. They're in the covenant family of God. But I've never bought that. I've never bought that case. Again, that's kind of another rabbit trail. We'll leave that for some other time. But I think we would understand the faith of the parents is not sufficient to save the child. God doesn't have grandkids. He only has kids. You have to have your own faith to be saved. The faith of your parents doesn't save you. And this too would still mean that all heathen children and infants are lost. Because their parents are clearly not believers. How about their own faith? Are infants saved by their own faith? Well, this is obviously no. That's why we have this whole discussion. That The whole point is they are incapable of exercising biblical saving faith. 
infants, small children, the mentally handicapped are incapable of exerting this type of saving faith. Now, the reason I bring this up, though, this should be obvious, this is no, but I bring this up because this one here actually poses quite the problem for Arminianism. You may remember one of the foundation stones of Arminianism is that salvation depends on an act of free will. A person to be saved, you have to choose to be saved. You must choose. It has to be your free will choice. God's not going to choose for you. It's, it, his, even his election is based on foreknowledge of your free will choice. It's all about your free will choice. They hold high God's greatest reverence and respect for our free will. God will not overturn our free will. He will not influence it or affect it. He holds off and just he created us with this ultimate libertine free will. So this whole, their whole system really hinges on the fact that God has supreme regard for man's free will and he would never overturn it, even to save someone. God wouldn't even overturn our free will to save us. That's what they believe. So, but this historically, though, has put Arminianism in a bind when it comes to infant salvation. Because infants, they're not able to exert the free will necessary to believe in Jesus and be saved. They, by definition, they, they just can't do this. And so if they're to be saved, I guess that would mean God would have to act on them to, to change them. He would have to act against their will to save them or, or give them a will or do something to them against their little will. If Armenians allow that even one person is saved without their consent, apart from their own free choice, the whole system falls. So historically, it's put them in a bit of a bind. There's no real logical place for infant salvation within Arminianism. They're left to either deny original sin and say they don't really need saving, they're just, they have no sin and guilt, or they're left to believe that there's some period after death which infants can be offered the gospel and choose to believe. And some have believed in this probation after death, like they some have with heathen salvation as well. We reject both. Clearly, we would say, if an infant is to be saved, how's it going to happen? Simply by this, by unconditional election and God's free grace. If it's going to happen, here's how it's going to happen, by unconditional election and God's free grace. The only way infants or anyone can be saved is by God's unconditional election and redemption in Christ, which is applied to them per God's will. It's in fact, it's only the Calvinistic perspective that can logically account for infant salvation. God is free to bestow salvation on whomever he wishes. Recall John chapter 3. John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus, wants to know about the way of salvation. Jesus says to him, unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Born from above, it's a divine birth. It's a supernatural birth. Who's in charge of this divine birth? Christ goes on to teach, God is. It's a divine birth. The spirit is the one who affects the new birth, and it's it's up to him. And so he says in John 3, 8, the wind blows where it wishes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. It's up to the spirit of God to apply a new birth. He blows, he moves, he saves where he wishes. We've learned all this. But this means, although infants do not merit God's election, God is perfectly free, if he wants, to choose to elect and therefore save all infants. If It's up to his wishes, right? He does all things according to the counsel of his will. We've seen so many verses on this. 
So we couldn't put it past him, at the very least, right, if it's up to his will. We'll say this. If infants are indeed saved by God, we can affirm some basic truths. Their salvation is only possible through the finished work of Christ. Christ is the only Savior. He's the Savior of all men, especially of believers, meaning there's only one Savior. There's no other Savior people can appeal to. He's the only Savior. That includes any person conceived of human beings. There's only one Savior in Christ, and that's Christ. Their salvation is just as unmerited as it is for adults. They're not in a special class where they, they merit something because of some inherent righteousness. They do not have an inherent righteousness. They're, they're not without guilt. So their salvation, if they're saved, is just as unmerited as it is for adults. Their salvation is just as costly as it is for adults. Namely, the substitutionary atonement of Christ on the cross. Jesus had to die for them. If they're to be saved, he had to die for them as well. Infants are purchased for redemption with the same cost as adults, namely Christ's blood. Notice here what we're doing, by the way. Armenians who typically do believe in infant salvation, to get there, they have to diminish the guilt of the infant and say, like, they're not really guilty, so they just enter heaven. We, however, with our view of sin, our, 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 we think a biblical and a right view of sin, instead of diminishing the infant's guilt and sin, we just are going to magnify God's grace and glory in infant salvation. That's later. We're going to get there. But you can see what we're doing here. They're not, they need the same salvation as everyone else, is what we're saying. And if they're saved, their salvation comes by regeneration. They must be born again too. There's, there's no exceptions. What Jesus said is still true. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Even for those who never finished their first birth, they still must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. I don't see any reason to find an exception there. They must be regenerated, given a new nature, apart from which they cannot enter the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood cannot enter, cannot inherit the kingdom of God, Paul said. Now understand, though, this work of regeneration, new birth. It's a divine work. And as we said it a while ago, it's applied by God irrespective of faith. Most Calvinists, technically not all, but most Calvinists believe that the divine work of regeneration comes before conversion, meaning before faith and repentance. In fact, even when we study that, faith and repentance are described several places as a gift, right? Even scripture def- defines our faith and repentance as a gift. But regeneration, most believe, actually comes first, even before that. It's a divine work from above where God changes us, gives us a new nature by which we will respond to the call of the gospel and be saved. Therefore, we would say God would be free to perform the divine work of regeneration on infants just as much as he's free to perform it on adults. Spirit blows where he wishes and moves where he wishes. There's no reason God could not regenerate an infant, even in the womb, if he wanted to. Like I said, there's nothing that contradicts this belief. There's nothing that stops us from believing that God could, if he wanted to, regenerate infants, the mentally handicapped, the unborn, and so forth, of his own free will. Now, quickly, let's point out, there's actually two possible examples of infant regeneration in Scripture. Turn to Luke 1. While you're doing that, I'll read Jeremiah 1. Jeremiah 1.15 is the example of Jeremiah, where God says, 
of Jeremiah. He says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I've appointed you as a prophet to the nations. That verbiage where God says, I knew you. It's significant. Most would see that as relational knowledge. God's, God uses the word and, and even humans know in a, in a relational sense that God knew. God consecrated. God redeemed Jeremiah from the womb. That verse could be saying that. It's, you're going to have to argue that, right? Again, it's not a silver bullet, but it's significant. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Also, Luke 1 is significant. It's talking about John the Baptist. Luke chapter 1. You remember, I hope, the story of John the Baptist's birth through Elizabeth. And let's see, go to verse... Let's start at verse 13. The angel announcing, announcing to Zacharias about the birth of John the Baptist, the forerunner to the Messiah. Verse 13. The angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Verse 15. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. I think we kind of gloss over that, but think about how, in a way, strange but significant that statement is. How can someone be filled by the Holy Spirit, filled with the Spirit, in the womb. Why would God do that? What's, what's the point of that? What's even more interesting, though, is as you study Luke's theology, so Luke and Acts, that which was written by Luke, whenever Luke uses this phrase of being filled with the Spirit, he always uses it as a consequence of regeneration, an evidence of regeneration. Do that study on your own, but you'll find every time he mentions being filled with the Spirit, it's an evidence of regeneration. And so many would take this as, as God... Which is probably why Jesus said there's none greater among men born than John. Regenerated from the womb. God is free to do that. There's nothing stopping him from doing that. You could get into philosophical debates about when does that person come to have intellectual faith then. The Bible just doesn't say that's left to speculation. But it's quite, it, this is an interesting case. And then look down at verse 39. So John is conceived. He's in his mother's womb. Remember what happens, though, when his mother, Elizabeth, runs into Mary, who has, who in her womb, Jesus. In verse 39, it says, Now at this time Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country, to the city of Judah, and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby, that's John, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth's. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then she goes on to, to bless Mary. But that's interesting. Here we have a case where John, little baby John, is leaping in the womb in response to Mary's greeting. The verse makes a very clear connection. The baby leaps in response to Mary's greeting. We're left to figure that the baby leaping for joy, John leaping for joy. Luke is telling us this was not a random kick of a baby in his mother's womb. This seems to be the, the fruit of the spirit of joy in, in response to the presence of the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah. But what else could this really mean? This is not just a coincidence. The connection is made pretty clear. We can say at least this to at least potential examples of infant regeneration. 
at the very least, by the supernatural agency of the Holy Spirit. God is free to regenerate people at any age. We understand faith comes by hearing, right? Faith comes by hearing, believing the gospel. That is the ordinary means of salvation that God reveals is what he ordinarily does. We understand that. We believe that. Faith comes by hearing. We made that case with heathen salvation. You've got to hear the gospel and believe to be saved. That's his ordinary means of, of justification by faith, right? We also made the case that extraordinary means are possible, right? Heathen salvation, God could use direct revelation. It's possible. And of course, here for infants, we're obviously arguing for extraordinary means. They cannot hear and be saved. But we can't put it beyond God's possibility of using extraordinary means to bring them to salvation. That is direct regeneration apart from hearing. Spurgeon said, quote, in the Lamb's book of life, we believe there shall be found written millions of souls who are only shown briefly on earth and then stretch their wings for heaven, end quote. He also said, to clarify, and I believe this, that it's not that God chooses someone to be saved because they're going to die in infancy. That would be conditional election. Rather, God has ordained that only those who have been elected will be allowed to die in infancy. I'll say that again if you didn't catch that. It's not that God chooses people to be saved because they die in infancy. It's rather that God has ordained that only the elect will be allowed to die in infancy. Remember, election takes place before time, before the foundation of the world. And all the days of our life were determined and ordained by God before as yet there was one of them. And so God is perfectly capable of choosing to elect all those whom he ordained by his plan of all things uh, who would die in infancy. So at this point, let's do a little a sub-conclusion here. What can we affirm up to this point? We can say, is it possible for God to save infants? Yes. There's nothing that could say that's beyond possibility. It's completely possible for God to do so. If God were to save infants, it would not be based on any merit of their own, but simply a marvel of God's grace and election applied to them through the miraculous intervention of the Holy Spirit. We can safely say that so far. What's left to ask is the big question. Does God do this? Okay, it's possible. Okay, I think we can agree it's possible. He could. Does he do this? Does he do this for all infants? Is there any reason to believe that he does this and that he would do this for all infants? What does the Bible say about that? We still have yet to say why we do believe this, or at least why I believe this. And that we'll do next week. You guys, you guys signed up for this? Well, maybe you didn't sign up for it. We have a format change, 7.30, on the dot. And we're going to end it right here. And this means we might cut a few episodes into two. We'll come back next week. There's actually quite a lot I have left in my notes, which is why I purposely wanted to end here. It's just there's a lot and uh, many verses we are going to get through. So next week will be more of the biblical case for why, at least I believe, there is reason to believe that God does choose to elect infants. Come back next time. We're going to find that out. So I'll pray for us. And then we'll have you stick around for some fellowship. Lord, we thank you for this time tonight in your word. It's a, a gripping topic, a topic that hits home to many people, something we definitely want to know about, and we believe your word has not left us totally in the dark or ill-equipped, granted not directly addressed, and I actually 
believe there's a very important reason why it is not directly addressed, but nonetheless, Lord, we're, we're thankful for just getting this study started. We want to be by the book. We don't want to let our emotions influence our theology. We don't want our experiences to influence our theology. Just let your word speak. So far, we've done that. The, the possibility is open. We pray you continue to guide us and, and just make it clear. And we'll hold on to truth as, as much as your word reveals it to us. So make it clear. But at the same time, Lord, I, I can say with confidence for my own study, how you give so much hope to those with, with infants who have passed, little ones who have passed. And we thank you that you're a God of hope, a God of great mercy and amazing grace and compassion uh, on, on, the, on little ones. We'll see that more next week. But for now, we, we give you glory for the grace we do know. And praise you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.